This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home, leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. November, Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. We're hearing more about cancer of the pancreas these days, and here to update us are two outstanding physicians in the field, each with vast experience in diagnosing and treating this cancer. Joining us today are Dr. Thomas Kowalski, Associate Professor at Jefferson and Director of GI Endoscopy and Director of the Pancreatobiliary Program, followed by Dr. Charles Yeo, Professor and Chair of Surgery at Jefferson and Co-Director of the Pancreas, Biliary, and Related Cancer Center. So much important information to share. A special welcome to my friend and colleague, Dr. Tom Kowalski. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Marianne. Very nice to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Of course. Well, we know the pancreas is a small organ. It's only about six inches long, shaped like a small fish. It has a wide end or a head that faces the right of the navel, and it tapers to a tail on the left side, and it's deep in the abdomen. All of these will play into the symptoms we discuss later. But So we know a tumor in the head of the pancreas can press on the stomach or intestine, making us feel full or losing appetite. Let's go back into the role of the pancreas, Tom. Yeah, okay, Mary. And, you know, the, the pancreas has two major functions. You know, it has a digestive function and an endocrine function. Uh, for digestion, the pancreas makes all the enzymes we need to digest fats and proteins and carbohydrates. And when you eat, digestive enzymes are released into a duct called the pancreatic duct, which empties into the intestine and combines with our food for digestion. I'm sure many of our listeners know that 
you know, pancreas is what makes insulin, um, as well as other hormones to help regulate our blood sugar. So, Tom, we've been hearing more about pancreatic cancer lately. Are the rates increasing? Um, you know, pancreatic cancer is a relatively infrequently occurring cancer, occurring in only 12 persons out of 100,000. Compare this number to colon cancer, which occurs in one out of every 20 persons. Despite this, there has been an increased awareness in pancreatic cancer, probably due to a handful of celebrities such as RBG and Alex Trebek uh, with this disease, resulting in some increased media attention. Uh, But the rates have been rising a little bit. New diagnoses of pancreatic cancer have been rising slowly over the last 10 years, likely due to our aging population. You know, baby boomers are getting older, better access to health care, and more frequent use of imaging, as well as increasing obesity. One other reason we are hearing a lot about pancreatic cancer is because pancreatic cancer has recently surpassed breast and prostate cancer and has moved from the fourth leading cause of cancer death to the third leading cause of cancer death. And it's really predicted to become the second leading cause of cancer death within the next 10 years. Now this, so maybe, I'm sorry. Because, um, now, this shift is primarily because the more prevalent cancers, such as breast and prostate and colon, are being more effectively prevented and treated, uh, moving their uh, to a more favorable position on the scale uh, rather than pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about causes, Tom? Uh, you know, in general, all cancers are caused by a mutation or changes in DNA that alter the cell's machinery um, so the cell divides or grows at an unregulated rate. Um, and this, these mutations can be influenced by hereditary factors or, or environmental factors. Um, overall, if we look at the big picture of pancreatic cancer, about 10% of pancreatic cancers are caused by a uh, inherited uh, cause. So there are one out of several inherited cancer susceptibility syndromes that have an identifiable mutation that can be passed from one generation to the, to the next. Another kind of inheritable cause of uh, pancreatic cancer is that in which there's a family history of pancreatic cancer, but no identifiable mutation can be, can be found. Right. So probably the majority of cases are what we call sporadic or not inherited. And we know the biggest risk factor for many cancers is age, a natural breakdown or errors in our DNA uh, processing and maybe the influence of radiation in our atmosphere, but other toxins in the environment. We have a little time. Let's talk about some of those factors that are in our control. Yeah, really good point, because it's really important to talk about things that we can control ourselves. Uh, The most important ones are smoking, obesity, hyperglycemia, diet, and inactivity. Mm -hmm. Smoking is clearly the biggest known environmental and preventable risk factor contributing to the development of pancreatic cancer. It's estimated that smoking is responsible for 25% of sporadic pancreatic cancers. The good news is that it's shown that if you stop smoking, that you can cut your risk of pancreatic cancer in half in just two years of being uh, having quit smoking. Another really important modifiable risk factor is obesity. 
on average, obese people have a 20, 20% higher risk factor or a 20% higher risk of developing pancreatic cancer than a person of normal weight. Uh, and it seems that the more severe the obesity, the higher the risk. So uh, it, that, that is a really important risk factor. Another one is hyperglycemia and diabetes. We know that patients with long-standing hyperglycemia and long-standing type 2 diabetes are at increased risk for developing pancreatic cancer. But another good news aspect of this is that improving glucose control may be beneficial to lowering the risk of pancreatic cancer. Let's take a break here and we'll be back with the symptoms of pancreatic cancer. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. We're back with Dr. Tom Kowalski from Jefferson GI. Tom, let's talk about the symptoms of pancreatic cancer. They're insidious, they're vague because the pancreas is deep in the belly. And sometimes that causes pain in the back. And if the tumor in the head of the pancreas presses on the stomach or intestine, you can feel full more quickly, lose weight gradually, lose your appetite. How about some of the other symptoms? Yeah, Marianne, you know, pancreatic cancer is considered a silent cancer often asymptomatic until it's late in its course. The main symptoms, as you said, is pain and loss of appetite, weight loss, but also there is uh, the tumor that blocks the pancreatic duct, causing a decrease in pancreatic enzymes to the intestine, leading to malabsorption of food and oily and foul-smelling stool. So that's a symptom of pancreatic cancer. But one of the most well-known uh, is what's caused from the blockage of the bile duct, um, which blocks bile um, and backs bile up into the liver, causing yellowing of the eyes and skin. And this is called jaundice. And I think most people kind of understand the yellowing of the eyes and skin uh, as being a symptom of some kind of problem in the pancreas. Um, in addition to jaundice, you might have very dark or tea-colored urine, which is also the same thing of backing up a bile, but this time into the urine. Uh, interestingly, because the bile ducts is only four millimeters in size, it doesn't require much to block. So jaundice may be an early uh, symptom or sign of pancreatic disease. And we know diet has an effect too, Tom, that there's an increased incidence of pancreatic cancer in Western and industrialized countries where the diet's high in fat and meats, especially smoked and processed meats, versus diets that are high in fruits and veggies. So let's talk about how we make the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, you know, um, the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is often made almost by accident. And, and we, we feel that just in, in my field, we feel it's a blessing when we make the diagnosis when a imaging study is done for some other reason, because one of the few ways we get to make the diagnosis early at a curable stage. Um, but other ways that we can make um, the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is through blood tests and imaging. Um, some of the blood tests will show us that blockage in the bile duct or pancreatic duct by looking at the blood levels of liver or pancreatic enzymes. Um, and as far as imaging, we have three major tests that uh, we use for imaging. 
CAT scan, uh, MRI, and endoscopic ultrasound. For the most part, CAT scan is the workhorse of our uh, diagnostic armamentarium. Uh, CT scans are fast, readily available, and really quite accurate, and diagnosing uh, with 85% accuracy uh, and diagnosing uh, pancreatic cancer. For, for anything that's more equivocal and much with, for smaller lesions that we see um, that may not be diagnosed on CT scan, we can use MRIs. And MRIs are slightly more accurate, uh, up to 89% uh, for small pancreatic cancers, but they're also longer in duration and more expensive. Uh, lastly, and, and, the, uh, and the most accurate uh, step, but the most invasive, is using endoscopic ultrasound. Uh, endoscopic ultrasound has an accuracy of 95% of detecting and diagnosing pancreatic cancer. Now, you'll say, what is endoscopic ultrasound? Well, that's a special instrument that places an ultrasound sensor, like the ones we use for looking at babies and the mother's uh, uterus, uh, at the tip of an endoscope. We can then put that endoscope into the stomach or into the intestine right next to the pancreas and get excellent imaging of the pancreas. Uh, and we can see very, very small lesions up to two and three millimeters. And we can take directed biopsies of any abnormalities we see. Which is really such a, uh, an advance in technology. And at Jefferson, we have uh, uh, doctors that are designated to do this all day, every day, with special pancreatic studies, you being the chief of that uh, program, and it's miraculous. And so people should know that's not available everywhere. It's becoming more available, but at a, an academic center, you're more likely to have that um, luxury and that great um, pickup rate. So we stage tumors, meaning we have to see whether the tumor is localized or if it's advanced, um, and we use CAT scans, MRIs, and various studies. Let's talk about, uh, in our final few minutes here, Tom, what are the most common questions patients ask you? I'm sure they say, what if I have a family history? I have a, a mom or a dad or a, a brother that has pancreatic cancer. What should I do? Right. You know, the e increased attention that we get with pancreatic cancer and the fact that it has such a high mortality, patients are really worried when they have a family history of pancreatic cancer. So if somebody has a first-degree relative um, a, and another family member uh, with pancreatic cancer, they should really see a pancreas specialist because it's just these people that will benefit from genetic counseling, genetic testing, and from surveillance imaging where we might do a CT or an MRI or an endoscopic ultrasound periodically to make sure that they're not developing a pancreatic cancer. Uh, another group of persons would be anybody with three family members, even if they're not first-degree relatives on the same side of the family. Uh, that would categorize them as having high risk for pancreatic cancer. And so first-degree relatives for our listeners means a parent or a sibling or less likely a child and then you're saying that if you have three family members on one side that might be a cousin and or a sibling or a parent, that that would increase that person's risk. Um, 
if they had a CAT scan for another reason, let's say somebody has diverticulitis or another reason to examine their belly and we happen to find pancreatic cysts, now what? Okay, well, uh, another very important question, Marianne. The pancreatic cysts are really, really common. About 20% of adult patients undergoing an MRI for a non-pancreatic reason are found to have a cyst in the pancreas. And about 50% of those cysts are precancerous. So it is estimated that 15% of all of the pancreatic cancers are related to precancerous pancreatic cysts. Therefore, if we find a patient that has a pancreatic cyst, then progression to an unresectable cancer can really be prevented. And pancreatic cancer can be prevented by getting that patient into a surveillance imaging program. So pancreatic cysts are a preventable form of pancreatic cancer. And it's one big way that we're going to see us reducing the overall rate of this deadly disease. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm sure once in a while, when somebody steps up and says, I have a close relative, and you, what test would you do? Would you do the endoscopy with the ultrasound on the tip of it? Yeah, you know, there, there's been several studies that look at patients that have a high risk of pancreatic cancer. And those patients are treated uh, with alternating studies of either endoscopic ultrasound with MRI or endoscopic ultrasound with CT scan on alternating years. That is the uh, most favored way of uh, surveilling this population. And so that means one year that have maybe an MRI because it's less radiation than a CAT scan and then the following year that have what looks like regular endoscopy like you're having an upper endoscope to check for ulcers or esophageal problems with that ultrasound on the tip and then alternate that's years right. with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I'm sure people ask you too, what if they have a history of pancreatitis? Does that play into their risk factor? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on whether they have acute pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis. Um, pancreatitis is an irritation of the pancreas that causes rapid onset severe abdominal pain. And although it's possible that a single episode of pancreatitis is caused by pancreatic cancer, um, it is not that likely. So we would usually image a patient uh, that has pancreatitis with a CT scan anyhow, uh, and that would catch most patients that have a pancreatic cancer. But if a patient has acute pancreatitis that has no clear cause, or if they have several bouts of pancreatitis, or if they have something called chronic pancreatitis, then the evaluation for pancreatic cancer really should be considered strongly. And I guess, too, when you make a new diagnosis of a, uh, a pancreatic cancer, we don't always jump right to surgery. We want a team. That's what's so beautiful about a place like Jefferson. Um, and you bring an oncologist or a cancer specialist into the decision-making early because in some cases, and we're going to talk about that with our surgeon, Dr. Yo, in the next segment, um, we consider giving chemotherapy and or radiation before going to surgery. So um, that is the beauty of having a whole team of people uh, looking at each case individually. Tom, if somebody wanted to reach you and come for advice because they have a family history or they're having symptoms or pancreatic cancer is suspected, how would they reach you? 
Yeah, Mary, we have uh, a team at Jefferson, uh, as you mentioned, that includes surgery, excellent uh, dedicated radiologists, oncologists, and our, uh, our GI uh, pancreatic team that includes five doctors that specialize in the pancreas. Uh, they can reach any one of us by uh, calling the GI division at Thomas Jefferson at 215-955-8900. 215-955-8900 is the GI office. And if you forget, listeners, you can always call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. Dr. Tom Kowalski, thank you so much for sharing this information. It can be life-saving. And please, if you have symptoms and you're listening to us, don't let it go. Don't think back pain is always arthritis. If your appetite is dwindling, get help as fast as you can. Thank you, Tom. Stay well. Thank you, Mary Ann. Thank you again for the invitation. Really enjoyed doing it. Uh, my, my pleasure. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And now we're joined by Dr. Charles Yeo the chair of surgery at Jefferson, with one of the largest experiences in pancreas surgery in the country. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Marianne. Thank you for the invitation. Now, we talk about a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and one of the terms that we use is staging the tumor, the process of collecting all the information from the CAT scan, maybe an MRI, sometimes a biopsy. And the question is, is the tumor small or has it spread? And if surgery is indicated, is the patient healthy enough for surgery? So Charlie, if you could tell us, is surgery the only potentially uh, curative treatment for pancreatic cancer? So Marianne, at this point, we believe that surgery must be a component of the treatment if the patient is, have a, is to have a cure. Although there have been great progress made in chemotherapy and staging and safer surgery, but at this point, I think most of the experts would agree that surgery is a key element for cure. And I know at Jefferson, we have this magnificent team of uh, radiology specialists, oncologists, which is a cancer specialist, surgery, which would be you, and uh, our GI docs. And that team comes together early and sometimes the decision is to give what we call neoadjuvant chemo, or neo meaning early or before surgery, and or radiation. How do you decide when that's going to be part of the plan? Yeah, Marianne, um, we have a multidisciplinary approach to pancreatic cancer patients. And uh, years and years ago, we put together the Jefferson Pancreas, Biliary, and Related Cancer Center. We review all of the images that the patient has, has had previously. We review the records, um, and we are able to discern the best treatment approach by taking many different factors under consideration. If the patient's tumor is small and is not close to any of the major visceral blood vessels, that is the, the major internal blood vessels, that live near the pancreas, um, then we often recommend what we call a surgery-first approach. 
remove the tumor, and then give the therapy, the chemotherapy and the radiation post-surgically, post-operatively. Alternatively, if the patient has a larger tumor that may impinge or encase upon these necessary blood vessels, then it may be that we'll we'll, um, recommend a neoadjuvant approach because the uh, patient would be considered to have a locally advanced tumor. In that case, we give the treatment first, the chemotherapy, often chemo plus radiation first, and then somewhere between four or six months later, the patient will have their operation. Mm-hmm. And I know that before the surgery, we count on images, that's CAT scans, MRIs, um, but sometimes you still perform laparoscopy. And for our listeners, that's putting a small scope near the navel into the abdomen to get a good look at the surface of all the organs. Um, when would you decide to do a laparoscopic exam before you would operate? Well, remember, laparoscopy is is an operation, although it is a minor operation. But we have tended to use laparoscopy less and less frequently over the years because our imaging studies, our CT scanners and our MRI scanners have gotten just so good, although they're not perfect. Um, it's not common for us to do laparoscopy uh, often. Now, there are circumstances where we do it. If a patient has suspicious lesions on a CT scan or an MRI scan, let's say in the liver or lymph nodes, or if a patient has a tumor in the left side of the pancreas, say the tail of the pancreas, where we know that these tumors can often um, show evidence of spread that doesn't show up on the scans, that's typically the time we do laparoscopy. But I would say Um, We do laparoscopy now probably less than 5% of the cases unless the patient is enrolled in one of our clinical trials where laparoscopy is mandated for uh, staging a pre-trial entry. Sure, that makes sense. So you already alluded to the fact that the surgery at at the head of the pancreas, where we said there's a fuller area of the pancreas versus tail, might be different. And I want to mention one thing. The name of the surgery that you do when operating at the head of the pancreas is complex. It removes part of the stomach, part of the intestine, the common bile duct, the gallbladder, and, of course, the tumor in the pancreas. And I want our listeners to understand that there are studies that show that the outcome or getting through the surgery is more likely with fewer complications and hopefully a longer cancer-free life in front of you if you go to a center that has high volume that does a lot of these. And Dr. Charles Yeo completed number 1700 yesterday. Am I right, Charlie? You did your 1700th Whipple procedure yesterday? Yeah, you're so kind, Marianne. Yeah, I've been very blessed and um, I did do a number 1,700 yesterday, my personal number of Whipples or mini Whipples as we now typically do. And, and you're right, it is, it is major surgery. The beauty of the mini Whipple is that uh, it preserves the entire organ that we call the stomach. It preserves the pylorus. It, it's a little less complex, if you will. It uh, preserves the reservoir function of the stomach. And so we're very pleased with the results of the mini Whipple procedure, also called the pylorus preserving pancreatic oduodenectomy. It's a bit of a tongue twister, therefore we like to just refer to it as the mini Whipple. 
And for our listeners, the pylorus is the gateway to the intestines. So it gives you control. And when you eat a meal, a little by little leaves the stomach rather than the whole thing rushing out at once, which can be uncomfortable and hard for people to tolerate. I'd love for our listeners to hear about your program called WARP, Whipple's Accelerated yeah. Recovery Program. Wonderful yeah. news. The WARP was really, um, is really the product of my associate, now, a full professor of surgery, Dr. Harish Lavu. And Dr. Lavu, years ago, did a study. It was a randomized control trial where we targeted hospital discharge on post-op day five following the Whipple procedure. And this is really amazing. You know, when I was training, most Whipple patients were in the hospital two or three weeks. And this Whipple Accelerated Recovery Program, WARP, um, really incorporates many of the newer techniques, many of the newer drugs, the, the, the pharmacy, um, the practices of modern surgery. And therefore, you know, anybody that's been in the hospital knows that being in the hospital is great when you're sick, but as you're getting better and better, you want to get home. And we're so pleased that now about 80% of our patients are able to be on what we call the WARP-5 pathway. They're able to go home on post-op day five, be with their families, sleep in their own beds, um, and, and they just recover so much quicker with this wonderful pathway. We've, um, we've reported on it. We've, uh, we've presented it at national meetings. And it's really been very satisfying to see how many other large, high-volume centers across the country have taken on the WARP pathway as their own as well. So I'm very pleased with Dr. Lavu and our whole team for putting this together. Well, and as you say, um, if you leave the hospital in five days, that's two fewer days that you're exposed to infection and, and other uh, problems that come with being in the hospital, and that's a goal for all of us. Um, the other interesting feature, uh, Charlie, is that a patient can have up to 90% of their pancreas removed without uh, being left with diabetes. Is that true? Well, um, you know... I always joke that when God designed us, he gave us an excess number of organs. You know, you don't need two kidneys to have normal renal function. And when God created us, he gave us more pancreas than we need. Now, of course, the risk if you take away too much pancreas and too many beta cells is that the patient will become a diabetic. So we don't like to take out any more pancreas than is necessary. And the typical operations that we do for pancreas cancer, whether it's the right-sided mini Whipple procedure or the left-sided distal pancreatectomy, they take out about half of the pancreas. And it's true that after removal of half of the pancreas, most patients do not develop diabetes. But you can have normal glucose levels and have even less than half of your pancreas. Well, the Whipple's procedure has come a long way since we were students, Charlie. Um, uh, let's take a little break and we'll be back to close with Dr. Charlie Yeo from Jefferson Surgery. 
Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're in our last segment of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Charlie Yo, who has a vast experience in surgery of the pancreas. Charlie, two things would like to close the show with. Please tell us about the registry for pancreatic cancer that's established at Jefferson. Yeah, this is actually a wonderful resource that we started now 15 years ago. The official name is the Jefferson Pancreas Tumor Registry. It's an opportunity for patients and their families to participate in what's now almost a 1,000 patient registry. We gather information about the patients, their um, occupational exposures, their environmental exposures, their kinfolk, their parents, their siblings, and we've used this as a tool to first better understand pancreatic cancer, but also to study quality of life and also to give us some insights into the genetics of pancreatic cancer. So this is a wonderful, wonderful tool. I'll give a shout out to the two co-directors of the registry. One is my dear wife, Dr. Teresa Yo, and the other is Dr. Harish Lavu. Well, it is a really important tool, and I would guess, too, if you do genetic testing, of course, that's all uh, information that you archive, and um, genetics is very strong at Jefferson as well. Charlie, can you tell us a little bit, too, about the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network? I know you've been instrumental in getting that foundation um strong and tell us how patients can tap into that. Yeah, I think it's very important that um, anybody who is struggling with this disease or wants to get more information, there is a wonderful advocacy group called the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Uh, It goes by the abbreviation PANCAN, P-A-N-C-A-N. They provide a wealth of information, educational materials for patients, They're an advocacy group with the federal government when it comes to funding. They help to source grants uh, for investigators working in this area. And they also also have a, a program called the Know Your Tumor Program, which links back to what we just talked about, and that is the importance of understanding the genetics of these tumors in the hopes that targeted therapeutics targeted Mm. drugs could be used for the patients if we discover specific mutations in their tumors. So I really do suggest uh, visiting the PANCAN website for those uh, of your listeners who have more interest in this topic. Yes, and that website again is PANCAN for pancreatic cancer, P-A-N-C-A-N.org. And you mentioned an interesting point, Charlie. When we talk about genetics there, we test for genetic mutations that are passed through a family, but then tumors have their own DNA changes, and that's a separate issue, all of which is part of your registry. For our listeners, Charlie, if somebody wants to reach you um, because their doctor suspects a diagnosis and they want testing or they have a family history, they can call Jefferson and reach you how? Well, uh, 1-800-JEFF-NOW is a great resource. 1-800-J-E-F-F-N-O-W will uh, get you through to our offices. Um, We have clinical coordinators and nurse practitioners who screen the patients. 
And, uh, you know, sadly, we screen up to two dozen patients every week, and they come from all over the country, but we're, we'd love to provide this service, and we just love to help people who are uh, worried and scared. I always say that we peddle hope. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the themes of PANCAN is to wage hope, and we've made great progress in pancreatic cancer. We've uh, gotten the uh, five-year survival rate up in, just in my career uh, to four or five times what it was whenever I first started. So we have a ways to go, but we have great optimism, and we have literally, we have dozens and dozens, hundreds of five-year survivors now, things that were unheard of years ago. Well, thank you for your great work, Dr. Charlie Yeo from Jefferson, and Philadelphia is richer because of you and Dr. Tom Kowalski. Thank you so much, and stay well. Now, you're real champions. And now for your real champion, Valerie Caballero. I call this segment, They Call Her Valerie. Several years ago, I took part in a health fair at Jefferson. While providing information about women's health care, I met a woman who was wearing a royal blue shirt. I told her, that's the color of colon cancer awareness and you should wear it during March. It led to a great conversation and she invited me to a meeting of an organization of which she's a member, NON, the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. A few weeks later, I went to a meeting of the Philadelphia chapter and was I impressed. The room was filled with focused professional women who had a full agenda and carried out a very efficient meeting. I was a guest speaker and I felt like I had just found an entire group of new sisters. Since 1974, NON has been the nation's leading professional society for Latina nurses. Now with 49 local chapters, NON is committed to advancing health in Hispanic communities. While celebrating their culture and caring spirit, the members aim to lead, promote, and advocate for educational, professional, and leadership opportunities for Hispanic nurses. That evening, I met the chapter president, Valerie Caraballo. Valerie joined in 1997 when the local chapter had just started. And for over 20 years, she's been more than an active member. Every officer position, including chapter treasurer, vice president and president, then national treasurer, and then she cycled back to chapter vice president and president. But let me tell you about their countless projects. When Valerie joined, she spearheaded an ongoing scholarship fund which helps students who want to attend nursing school. Another annual project NON does is provide free flu vaccines for people in the community. Since COVID, the local chapter has partnered with two other community organizations called Siempre Salsa and Congreso de Latinos Unidos. The initiative provides COVID education and gives masks away for free. They also partner with the Mendoza Group, the Delaware Valley's first full-service Hispanic advertising agency, public service teaching about masks and social distancing. They work with the Philadelphia Department of Health to give free flu vaccines for people ages 18 all the way to the elderly at homeless shelters and other centers which appreciate their outreach. Maybe what touched me the most was hearing about Valerie's work with people suffering from addiction. She and fellow nurses provide foot care and treat open wounds. They also organize a sneaker exchange, teach about hygiene with special instruction about foot care, and they give flu shots. And wait, I'm not finished. Esperanza is a junior college, a STEM school at 5th and Bristol. Valerie and other members are mentors for students who want a career in nursing 
and organize career days and share information about non. After meeting Valerie a few years ago, she invited me to give a lecture about women's cancer prevention at their annual information fair called Latina Style Event. Over a thousand people gather at their large community center called Concilio and Nan fills the center with companies that offer all types of services, including healthcare and insurance information. All this, and we still didn't even talk about her day job. Valerie's a nurse practitioner who began her career at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children. In more recent years, she's worked in the emergency department and in urgent care settings. Valerie loves to give back to the community and has shown us that. Then came the call of COVID. For three long months, she volunteered to work in field hospitals in New Jersey set up for COVID. She put herself in harm's way and continued her quest. Now she works for a pharmaceutical company doing research for COVID treatment and access to care. If you look up the name Valerie, it comes from the time of the Romans and it was a Latin clan name, which denotes strength and health. The perfect name for your real champion, Valerie Caraballo. We salute you, Valerie Caraballo, your real champion. Thanks for listening, and I have a special announcement. Next Thursday, November 12, at the Jefferson Breast Center, we're starting our program called Pink Plus. Ladies, you can have a mammogram and a colon cancer screening visit, or a GYN exam and mammo and colon cancer screening visit. That's two or three cancer screenings in one stop. The program is Pink Plus because your cancer prevention is more than just a mammogram. Appointments are late afternoon until 6.30. You need an appointment, so call 215-503-1631. That's 215-503-1631. Or you can always call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. Tune in next week when we'll talk about dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And we have a new address for our website, yourradiodoctor.net. Listen to all our shows on yourradiodoctor.net and keep it here for the one and only really big show, Sid Mark and the Sounds of Sinatra. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.